Hello everybody, welcome to Into the Prey, Breaching the Chaos of the Church with Nick and Mary Franks. I've got a couple of things for you to hear today. I've got a teaching session in Malachi that was up on YouTube and you can go and watch that if you prefer the visual that's there available. Now there's a whole reading of Malachi this week as well, so that's a separate video. I'll put all these links into the show notes for you to go and see all of them. The other thing I want to do is let you listen just to a clip from another video that went up on YouTube a few days ago. I was out on the street on the Royal Mile with about 30 people, probably more than that, because there were a whole bunch of people that didn't want to be involved. But there were about 20, 25 people who did. And basically, I was out on the street talking to the public about the word repent. What does it mean to the general public for us to proclaim a gospel of repentance? So you'll hear a little bit of a clip now from that video. If you want to go and watch that in its entirety, you can do that on YouTube. Maybe share it with some friends, family members, people who are wanting to try and think about engaging with people in our very lost, confused world. Let's listen quickly to a little clip from that. Repent now. Okay. What are we repenting about? Um, Take your time. What do you think of that? Yeah, I don't know, man. I don't know. We've all got something to repent for, haven't we? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't mean anything to me personally because I'm... I kind of just leave people to their own beliefs. But if that's how you feel about certain things, on you go. I don't mind. Like, you do what you need to do. But the way my mind works, I guess, it's just... It doesn't mean much to me. Oh, it's feels like a get-out-of-jail-free card, um, and uh, I don't quite like that, <laughs> to be honest. Um, what does that mean to you? Get rid of all your old vibes. That's about it. Yep. The back? He's always watching over you. Um... It says repent noun. Repentance, in it's like in itself. Um, what I mean to, to like repent is to sort of ask for forgiveness for something that you've done wrong. Um, Personally, I feel it's quite negative. I feel like you know you can just get away with anything then if you if you just have to repent. So um, yeah, I feel like uh, it allows people to. Um, not take responsibility, in a way. Mm. <laughs> I have an immediate response. <laughs> My father is a preacher, so I grew up in the church, and I have a fraught relationship with it. And... Yeah, I feel like my gut reaction is like, cringe (laughs) just a bit so interesting as all of that was the point the point is that we need to be proclaiming the gospel and it's helpful to have an understanding of how people respond if we just leave gospel booklets lying around or strategically in places where people will pick them up and see them maybe even read them and talk about them 
if we don't understand what's going on inside people's heads, then it's going to be difficult for us to to convert that into meaningful conversations where people, excuse the pun, do then become converted. That's what we want, isn't it? That's an unashamed desire is to see people convert to being lovers and followers of Jesus. So if you want to watch the whole of that 14-minute video, there's some absolute clangers, some absolute clangers by way of comment and a couple of comments that I think are prophetic, particularly from the fellow Devonian at the very end of the video. Uh, an unbeliever by all accounts. He didn't seem to be a Christian in any shape or form, but listen to what he says. That's right at the end. So go ahead onto YouTube, check the show notes for the link to that. Let's go over now to the teaching session from the book of Malachi. Pray that it's a blessing to you wherever you are in the world. Greetings, everybody, joining either by vlog or on the podcast. Can you think of a time when you were speaking with somebody and it might be a friend, it might have been a member of your family, it could have been maybe someone that you'd only just met, somebody in a public service context or whatever it is. You were talking with this person and you knew, you just knew that whatever you said wasn't going to change, wasn't going to matter, wasn't going to affect the person that you were speaking with. It was, there was a sense of futility and pointlessness of the conversation that you were having. doesn't matter how valid your points, doesn't matter how heartfelt your posture, it wasn't going to matter. This week I had an encounter with somebody like that who wanted to attack me for something, and it was evident and obvious to me from the immediate get-go that it, whatever I said in response, it wasn't going to matter. There wasn't going to be any cellar. There wasn't going to be any kind of maturity of reflection and uh, honour or respect. There was just going to be more <laughs> more back. Um, those kind of things, depending on the context, can be irritating, perhaps infuriating. And that was the case this week. But at other times, again, depending on the person, the person who is behaving like that, it can be incredibly painful. All right, the example I gave this week of the person who wanted to attack me and whose posture was, was like I'm describing... It was just an irritant. If we were on the football pitch, I would have probably slammed into him in a in a harder than normal challenge, or if I was playing rugby, I would have wanted to take him out. It's just annoying, you know, irritating. Perhaps not very Christ-like in response from me. Although Jesus doesn't always pander to our sterile stereotypes of him, does he? And we'll see that in a minute in this book of Malachi. But I want to say that when it comes to other 
relational spaces in your life, that kind of attitude is profoundly destructive, not only to relationship, but to your heart. I've also had experience where speaking with people with this kind of same mentality of it doesn't matter what you say, it's like water off a duck's back. When that's within a closer relational sphere or orbit, this is what we're seeing here in this book of Malachi, it is profoundly painful. And this is, this is what we're seeing ultimately through this prophetic book, short prophetic book, right at the end of the Old Testament, bridging before 400 years of relative silence, well, total silence, before the Gospels begin and John the Baptist emerges onto the scene in Israel, just as Jesus himself in his public ministry is emerging onto the scene like a grenade. This is, this is what we're seeing. We're seeing the dynamic of the Father, of God Almighty, specifically talking to his priests. This is the context of Malachi, divorce, adultery, um, just spiritual adultery and Zechariah had prophesied there'd been prophets before Malachi and there'd been a kind of warming response to the call the national call to repentance and then of course what happens with people we see this cyclically like in the book of Judges whatever the people of God there's a relenting of the consequences of sin and idolatry and adultery and then people return back to their, they revert back to the way they were. Um, that's what we're seeing here. And that's why Malachi then comes onto the scene and he um, is going after the priests, specifically the priests, those who were supposed to, you, and just in, I'm going to give you a quick references. And what I'm going to do in this video is kind of intersperse the live reading that I'd just done. So you've got some live. Um, some actual reading of Malachi as well. But just in, in chapter 2 here, in verse 7, for the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should, should seek instruction from his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Verse 7 of chapter 2, for the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. King Charles has just taken an oath before a watching world to be a defender of the faith. Um, irrespective of that, Malachi is saying to the faulty, false priests at the time who were an abomination to God, for the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. And when the lips of a priest don't guard knowledge and when people can't reliably come to a priest for instruction, it's rot. It is national rot. Malachi is a book, unfortunately, one of the negative effects of um, denominationalism is that typically Malachi will be quite a popular book pulled down from the shelf for Pentecostal charismatic churches who want to do some teaching on giving. You know, I, <laughs> I was about to say I was um, disadvantaged to grow up in a, a Pentecostal church in some ways. That is true. In other ways, it was an immense blessing. But one of the negative aspects of, denom of that denominational context growing up is that the book of Malachi was only ever mentioned 
when it came to tithes and offerings. You know, if there was a, if there was maybe a New Year focus on giving, for example, this classic old chestnut of Malachi would be pulled down from the shelf. Everybody would be asked to turn to the book of Malachi, chapter three, and sorry, chapter yeah, chapter three, and then we'd be moving on to something else, something about breakthrough or you know whatever it is, Lord's intention to bless us and so on. So the context of Malachi was never faithfully taught. It was used as a lever to somehow prime the people of God to give more, to even test God, wanting to lever the language of, of Malachi in this book, to test God as though that was some kind of virtue. Like the pastor speaking to the church, I dare you to test God. Putting God to the test because somehow he's bound by his word so that if we give a certain percentage of our income, he's obliged to pour out blessing and, you know, make sure our crops don't fail and make sure that we have more than we need and uh, so on and so forth. So it's a tra- it's a tragedy, it's a travesty that this book is used like that when its overall context is actually speaking directly into that kind of uh, priestly misuse, if I can say that. What I want to do, and keep this as short as I can, not that shortness is always needed, but I do want to keep this fairly succinct, to say that as I was reading this yesterday, the thing that really struck me was, going back to what I was just saying about this whole attitude of people who just don't want to hear, they want to attack. They want to attack. And the belligerence of not being able to listen is so manifestly clear that's what's going on here. In the very first verse, the very first word of the Lord to his people is, I've loved you, says the Lord. I've loved you, chapter 1, verse 2. God loves us. <laughs> we were on the st- I was on the street just a couple of days ago, and one um, lovely Australian lad described that as mildly amusing. <laughs> um, you know, quite a butch Australian lad, and to be told that he loves you, like it's just it was just an amusement to him. Nevertheless, God loves him. He loves us. Idiots that want to attack me for saying that you shouldn't be preaching love to people who don't yet repent is an absolute joke. He loves us. And you can argue all day about whether the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ was for only for people who would receive him. But it says in the Bible that for God so loved the world... Of course, there are unique covenantal distinctives between people that know him and love him and respond to him in faith and those who don't. Nevertheless, do we ever see Jesus not loving people who reject him? Jesus' love for us isn't based on our acceptance or rejection of him. And that's not to deny 
the unique covenantal relationship that we have as those who were as children called before the foundation of the earth to know him. It certainly doesn't mean that we shouldn't be telling people who we have no way of knowing whether they're going to repent or not. It certainly shouldn't mean that we shouldn't be saying to them that he loves you. He's a God of love. So he's a God of love. I have loved you, says the Lord. And then look at this. Look at your text if you can. But you say, <laughs> this is the refrain through the whole book, but you say, God speaks, and then instead of people listening, stopping, literally being silent, there's the but, but you say, and there's these nine. I'm just going to give them to you quickly, all right? The references, you'll see them easily enough for yourself, but just for quick reference, this refrain comes in chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 1, verse 6, chapter 1, verse 7, chapter 1, verse 13, chapter 2, verse 14, chapter 2, verse 17, chapter 3, verse 7, 3, verse 8, and 3, verse 13. How have you loved us? The priests, the people of God say, how have you loved us? I've loved you, says God. How have you loved us? Verse 6 of chapter 1. How have we despised your name? O priests who despise my name, what a what a what a messed up. This is, we can't escape from this. What a messed up image this is. A priest who despises the name of God. Priests who despise the name of their God. And we have churches all over the city, all over the cities of this country, all over the cities of the countries of the West. Priests who despise the name of Yahweh. We stood outside a church recently with the seven-foot cross because there were priests, they're not priests, they're false counterfeit wolves in sheep's clothing who strut around as though they were priests, but they despise the name of Yahweh. If you said that to them, they would, they would deny it. They would accuse you of upsetting their congregation. <laughs> they deny the word of God. They despise his name. How have we despised your name? So if they were real priests, this is what would have happened. God would have said, you've despised my name. And the people's response would have been cutting. They would have been cut. They would have been absolutely gutted. They would have been utterly flawed. They would have been silent. You might have heard them crying, weeping, sobbing. If God said to you or I, you've despised my name, how would you, what would your response be to that? Would it be to say, how have, how have I despised your name? Like a petulant child, like a petulant, entitled teenager. How gutted would we be, how, how gutted would you be to be told that? Verse 7, 
of chapter one. How have we polluted you? Just look at the at, your, at the Bible there. Um, priests who have despised my name, verse six. But you say, how have we despised your name? And then God says, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? And God tells them. The, the 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 things that they had laid aside ready to give as a devoted costly sacrifice they decided to keep for themselves instead they gave an animal that was lame or blind we know from the levitical law that that was an abhorrence forbidden so it's a it's a symbol of wholeheartedness is what you're doing what we're doing is it costly does is there cost associated is there, a, is, there a, is there a cost associated to the wholeheartedness of our lives before God, which are going to go like that? We've got no guarantee of tomorrow. I encourage you to reflect on this. Is your life before God similar to these guys, these false priests who despised his name, who just wanted to keep the best for themselves? The book starts with the contrast between Jacob and Esau. The difference between those two men in terms of their posture before God, and it's the same today. How, how have we polluted you? By bringing in your lame animals, by giving me not your anything but your best. You don't love me. You don't love me. Uh, chapter 1, verse 13. Or verse 12 to begin with. God says, you, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. <laughs> and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. There you go. There's those... But is this, is this kind of feigning? This is the word for this, okay? Verse 13, but you say, what a weariness this is. That for me, and there are a couple of parallels in this book with the last couple of years of world history with the church and the church closures that just rings so true. It's so, so true. It's feigning, feigning. What a weariness this is, calling the government to account because we can't handle what God's saying. It's it's not it's not real weariness. It's not it's it's a weariness that the people of God want to divert and deflect away to any other any other thing or reality other than themselves. There is a weariness here, of course, there is, and the weariness is with them, is with the priests, not with God. It's not not with what God is saying. That's not the root of weariness. The root of weariness is that when God speaks, there are nine examples in this book where people say, but you say. <laughs> God speaks. He brings a perfect diagnosis in love and mercy that the people of God would repent and respond. But there's this, this refrain, but you say. There's no reference here of the people of God shutting up, being quiet humbling themselves, worshipping him, adoring him, behaving as men should before God. Your thoughts of God are too human. What a weariness this is. Yes, there is. 
just backing up to verse 10, as I mentioned, just as an aside with the, with the church closures, look at this verse, verse 10 of chapter 1. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I'm literally not going to say anything else about that because I've already said everything that needs to be said about that, but it's there in the word of God. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. Chapter 2, verse 14. And God says, the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears. Again, thinking of that weariness that was genuine. They felt weariness, but it was it was weariness with the wrong thing. It wasn't weariness with themselves. It was weariness with God. And hence, there were, there were crocodile tears. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping. Don't be, don't be confused here. This isn't the kind, right kind of weeping. And groaning. So we can weep and groan all day long, but it has no effect because it's idol, idolatry. It's spiritual whoredom. Because he no longer regards, so God no longer regards this kind of weeping or groaning. And then again, we see the same response. Verse 14, why does he not? He doesn't regard, he wants these places shut. He wants these so-called sacrifices stopped. Because he doesn't regard, why, why do you not? Petulance, strutting, entitlement, pride, arrogance. Verse 17, how have we wearied him? For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord God, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord. Um, divorce is a key part of this book. Um, we see that in Jeremiah 5, where there are literal ransacking of Hebrew homes, marriages being split apart, such was a, as a reflection of the spiritual adultery. This is, this is the same here. Divorce in the natural is reflecting the spiritual adultery that is crippling the nation. And, and again, there's that response in verse 17, but how have we wearied him? Three verse seven. Let's just jump over there and I'll finish. This is uh, kind of deliberately bypassing what I was saying earlier about this whole classic misuse of the of the or abuse actually of this passage to rip it out of its context and only ever use it for one thing. I'm going to deliberately. I'm not saying anything about tithes and offerings today, but if you look at chapter three verse seven, God speaks to them about returning. Okay, so forget tithes and offerings for a minute. Just think about the basic posture that I started this teaching with, which is that a person, two people can meet together at the level of the heart and genuinely want love and reconciliation. If you have one half of that equation that doesn't want to, that just wants to come back with this list of but you says, the nine examples here, it's not really, it's not reconciliatory. It doesn't matter. You can meet with people over coffee or over a meal or at a table and it look like it's reconciliatory, and it can even be like, oh, we've done everything we, we we've done everything that we can possibly can to forge reconciliation here. Fundamentally, they haven't even begun to because the attitude is exactly the same. So to return from that, 
God is, olive branch is always there. There's a wonderful bit somewhere in here where it says that God will not consume. Um, yeah, it's, it's, chapter, it's chapter three, verse six. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God is a God of mercy, despite the filth. And there's an olive branch here that they would return and their response in uh, 3 verse 7 is to say, return, God says, return to me and I, re- and I will return to you. Return to me and I will return to you. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. Repent and stop your nonsense. Turn from your wicked ways and I will heal your land. Second half of verse seven of chapter three. But you say, how shall we return? Instead of recognizing that they needed to. Why do we need to return? What's gone wrong? What are we not seeing? What have we missed? When pastors today talk about bringing the glory of, the, of God back to the church as though they could without asking why the glory of God has manifestly departed. Ichabod, it's the same thing. Return to me, says the Lord, and I'll return to you. How should we return? It might seem like the right question, and I suppose in a way it is. But if it's from the same place as these other eight examples of but you say, it's 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 wanting to bring the glory of God back to the church whilst not asking why is it ever left. Let me just read this these final six verses of of the book because my ongoing daily prayer and I hope that it is for you anybody watching listening to me thank you. And I hope it's your daily prayer as well this Um, coming to our senses will happen at a national level where these nine examples of but you say, God speaks, I love you. How have you loved us? It's disgusting. I pray that you would pray on a daily basis because the consequences of this are dire, they are grave. And these six verses sum it up and... I'll read them now and simply pray. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall and you shall tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. 
Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Father, I thank you in the name of Jesus that you you are timeless and unchanging and that as such you are merciful, loving, immensely patient with us. Lord, where the example that I've thought about today with people meeting each other over either a table or over a screen or over a phone, and that they're it fundamentally isn't the posture on one half to hear, listen. Lord, when we awake every day in the world that we're in and recognize that the only solution to the despair of the people is that the land would be healed as a result of the people of God turning from their wicked ways to you in a totally different posture. And that's our prayer now as we read this significant book, foreshadowing your coming, John's coming, the church's coming, and that there would be in this day by your spirit, and if it isn't for your spirit, Father, if it's not, if it's not Holy Spirit, if it's not, if you don't do it, how is it gonna happen? If you don't shut, stop, get rid of, bring us to our senses, how can it happen without you? You first loved us. And Lord, we pray, I pray now that you'd have mercy. For your name's sake, you'd have mercy and that you would move by your spirit so as to Bring your people to their senses. In the precious name of Jesus, I pray for your glory, Father. Amen. Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you'd like to be part of our support team to help produce this content, basically what is a full-time volunteer ministry, please come through to our Patreon website where you can join a small team of supporters and help make this happen, basically. We're looking in the long term to reduce work in other areas for Mary, particularly. So if you want to help facilitate that, we'd love to hear from you. If you want to talk about that, discuss that, hear what our plans are for that, please do drop us a line.